1 Samuel 12, starting at verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and grey, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the armour of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah and Samuel and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side so that you lived securely. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called upon the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain, So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols, They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, 
Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Thank you, Helen. Let's keep that passage open, and uh, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm just recalling those words at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 3, when Samuel was a young boy, and he said to you, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak tonight, and that as your servants here, we would all listen to your voice That this chapter would encourage us, that it would rebuke us, that it would prepare us, most importantly, to serve you in the week ahead. So, Lord, as your servants, we pray now that you would speak to us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Great. Well, after the sort of uh, marathon of last week, uh, looking at three chapters, we're back to normality this week. We're just looking at one. Um, Back to another marathon next week. Um, Here's a question for you. If you could... um, If you had an aspiration for your life, if you just wanted to achieve one thing, I wonder what it would be. What would you most like to achieve in your life? Uh, Samuel's an interesting character because as I've been reading and studying and thinking about his life, really God uh, raised him up for one purpose, really two purposes. He was going to have one conversation and he was going to do one thing. And that's kind of Samuel's life. You might think, well, that's pretty rubbish. I had higher aspirations than that. But the one conversation that he's going to have in chapter 16, in a couple of weeks' time, sorry, the, the, the conversation which we've already looked at, and the one thing he's going to do in chapter 16 in a couple of weeks' time, are hugely significant. So we mustn't always think that if we've got one ambition in life, that ambition is not a positive one. Because God had a very specific plan for Samuel's life. If you've got a Bible there, we're just going to do a, a little bit of a recap, because it'll help us to work out where we are. So just remember, go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel. Uh, We didn't look at these chapters because we began our series in chapter 8, but you see in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel that Samuel is born. Samuel really is the last of the judges, a kind of temporary leader given to God's people. Um, After Samuel would come the first king, King Saul, and we've been looking at that in previous weeks. Then if you were to skip forward to chapter 9, you see really that the primary task that God had given Samuel in chapter 9, verse 16, was to appoint Saul as king over Israel, the first king that the Israelites had. So that was one of his big, big tasks. And he also had to pass on a message from God. You see at the end of chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 27, that God had given Samuel a task of passing on a very specific message to, Samuel, uh, to Saul. Well, then skip forward to chapter 11, where we were last week. Chapter 11, verse 15, um, Saul was confirmed as king, the first king over Israel. And then into chapter 12, which we're looking at in isolation this week, uh, Samuel really is getting older. He's kind of putting in place retirement plans, not because he doesn't want to work, but because he knows that God had called him for a very specific job, which was nearly complete. And so he wants to kind of retire from God's service with a clear conscience. So what's the one thing that he does? Well, Helen, as she read, helps us to see chapter 12, verses 6 to 13. Did you notice how Samuel gives God's people a kind of history lesson? 
he, he takes them back to their past, to what God had done for them, in them, through them, how they had responded, firstly in obedience, later in disobedience. And he uses this kind of history lesson as a kind of way of anchoring what he's about to say. Here's a little summary from last week, if you can remember. We looked at these different uh, bullet points here. The belief of God, unbelief of God's people, really the perennial problem that runs all the way through the scriptures. But astonishingly, the unbelief of you and I is always met by an incredibly gracious God. And then we looked last week, didn't we, these two ways in which God uh, kind of displays his grace to us in 1 Samuel. Firstly, by preparing a king for his people. And secondly, by bringing victory for his people through his king. And if you remember last week, the end of chapter 11, Saul, by the strength that God had given him, led God's people to this brilliant victory over their enemies. But in light of that victory, if you think back last week, there was this great victory. That's where chapter 11 ended. What is chapter 12 going to go on and say? Really, this chapter is a call for God's people to obey him. Do you see it in chapter 12, 14 to 16? If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and your king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. What I'd love you to do is to turn to the person next to you and see if you can answer this question. Why does God give us commands? Just have a chat with the person next to you and see if you can think of a few suggested reasons. Why does God give us commands? Uh, Let's have a few suggestions. Just shout them out. I'll repeat them for the sake of the recording. Why, Why does God give us commands? It's not test. Thank you, Jackie. He knows what's best for us. We're going to come back to that. Very good, Alan. He knows that we think we know what's best for us. Good. Keep going. Thank you. Yeah. God gives us commands so that we know what pleases him. Any other ideas? So he's given us commands to remind us that he is God and he's the one who gives us commands. I'm very pleased you said that because those three things are the three things I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, this wasn't staged. Anything else, though? Yeah, there is a certain degree to which God is testing our obedience. He gives us commands. Will we keep them? Good. Let's have one or two more. Alistair? Yeah, there's the sort of paradox there. He's testing us, but we can't ever live up to his standards. Uh, it shows us our need for him. There was one hand in the middle here. Hugh? So lots of different reasons the list could go on. Uh, why does God give us commands? The three things we're going to look at in this passage, which really help us to understand why does God give us commands? Because it was off the back of this great victory last week that into chapter 12, he then calls God's people to obedience. So the first thing you see here is that commands are given in the context of relationship. Uh, I think that for some of my friends who um, are not Christians and think it's mad that I am a Christian, this perhaps is a, one of the big stumbling blocks. Often it comes from a view that there's a kind of God out there somewhere, and here I am. And that God out there somewhere barks orders at me here to tell me to go and do something over there. That's the kind of idea we have of God. A God out there who barks orders at me, and I have to go and do what he says. 
None of us would want to serve a God who just barks orders at us. But the great thing is, we don't serve a God who barks orders at us. We serve a God who lovingly gives us commands in the context of relationship. Do you see in chapter 12, verse 14, there's a lovely little phrase there, the Lord your God. Samuel's reminding God's people, he's not the Lord out there that you could know of or speak about. He's your God. He's the one who, through the history, has led your people all the way through the generations. He is your God. And it's in the context of reminding them that he is their God, that he's then going to give them the commands. If you're very sharp, you'll see that in 25 verses in this chapter, 27 times you get the word Lord. And in your Bibles, it will come up um, in the capitals. And it's a, a translation from the Hebrew word Yahweh. And we've looked at this many times before. One of the things that that name of God means is speaking of the covenant relational name of God. The God who knows his people. The God who is amongst his people. So it's not a throwaway line when he says, the Lord your God. He's saying, the Lord, the covenant God, is your God. So he's not a distant God who's going to bark orders at you, obey me. He's your God and he's giving you these commands in the context of a relationship. But don't know if you notice, there's a real surprise in verse 20. Have a look down. Samuel replies, do not be afraid... Speaking to God's people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord. Have a think about that. Why is that a surprise? When I muck up and disobey someone, what do I want to do? Leg it the other way. Why? Because he's going to run after me. When we mess up and we recognize that we've not obeyed God... Every bit of us wants to run. Why? Because we think God's coming after us with a big stick. You've not kept my commands. But what's the astonishing thing in in verse 20? Samuel says to them, don't run away. Instead, turn back to the Lord. And they know of the Lord. One of the names or the phrases that was spoken of this Lord. Our God is a consuming fire. So they're probably thinking, I don't want to turn back to that kind of a God. That's a pretty scary place to be. But Samuel says, no, 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 turn back to him and serve him with all of your heart. What's the alternative, verse 21? I've disobeyed God's commands. I want to run in the opposite direction. I think he's going to beat me with a big stick, but actually he won't. But what's the alternative? Instead of running away from him or choosing to come to him, the alternative Samuel presents them is this. Don't turn after useless idols. They can do you no good nor can they rescue you because they are useless. He's kind of laboring his point, isn't he? He's saying, there is a living God. You can serve him and worship him, or you can choose to serve and worship something else. It's a living God or an idol. It's your choice. But the astonishing thing is, when we mess up and disobey the living God, he says, come back to me. If we were to serve an idol... I just can't speak, but whatever it is in the world, the influence that we serve would never say, come back to me, but would always say, you've mucked up, would always enslave us even more. So what we see in this passage is just as um, obedience comes in the context of a right relationship with God, so too disobedience comes in the context of a wrong relationship with God. So that's the first thing we see. Why does God give us commands? Commands are given in the context of 
relationship. The Lord God, your God. Here's the second thing, and uh, one or two of you picked that up with your responses. Why does God give us commands? It's to help us to flourish. Do you notice in chapter 12, verse 15, Samuel says that if we turn from his commands, what's the result? It speaks of God's hand being upon us. It's this idea of the heaviness of God's hand pushing down on us, kind of reminding us of the mess that we're getting into when we disobey him. And again, we get that little phrase in verse 15, as it was against your fathers. He's again appealing back to the history of Israel, saying, look what happened in the past when you chose to disobey. That relationship with God was broken and your ancestors were under the judgment of God. So Samuel, in his love for them, is saying, don't go back there again. Then if you can remember back to a few weeks ago when we did this little series called Seeing God In. And Neil helped us understand the, first, the second half of Psalm 19. Now, if you've got a Bible there, you perhaps could flick to Psalm 19. If you haven't, you might know the psalm. But here's a couple of questions for you to think about. You don't need to respond. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11 how are God's commands described and what do they do? How are God's commands described and what do they do? Uh, to jog your memory, if you haven't got a Bible there, it's the verses that start, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the law are trustworthy, making wise the simple and so on. I hope you're seeing that all the way through the second half of Psalm 19, we're seeing a number of descriptions of God's commands. And we're seeing a number of things that they do. And they're all good. And we saw that really clearly a few weeks ago when we looked at that psalm together. I want you to imagine that it's a really windy day and I'm flying a kite in this room. Okay. Now, the way that a kite can fly... I've given you this illustration before, I think. The way a kite can fly is because the kite has a cord that's attached to the flyer. Can you imagine if the kite itself had its own agenda and it said, I want to be free from the person who's holding me with the cord. And so it it cut itself free and the kite was free. What would happen to the kite? It would just crash straight to the floor. Why? Because there's no cord attaching it to the one in whom is enabling the kite to fly. The only way that a kite is truly free is to be attached to the one who owns the kite. The second the cord is broken, there's not actually freedom at all. There's just enslavement and the kite falls to the floor. And it's exactly like that with God and his commands. He gives us the commands in the context of a relationship. And the second that we seek to break free from that relationship, we think that is where true freedom can be found. But actually... The complete opposite is true. Commands are given by a loving God because he wants us to flourish. But notice it's the last thing as well in this passage. The commands are given to remind us that God is Lord. Do you see in verse 13, we read there, the Lord has set a king over you. Now, that king was the first king over Israel, Saul. He was chosen, appointed by God, and he'll be anointed as king very shortly. 
But notice the next verse, after verse 13. It goes on, verse 14. God says, Samuel says, serve the Lord, both you and your king. Yes, Israel's asked for a king, a leader over them. But the leader is still answerable to God. Why? Because the leader is not the true king. The true king is God. And it's both God's people and the king over God's people who are all subject to the living God. So part of the reason that God gives us commands in the context of a relationship for our flourishing is to remind us that he is God. Uh, We reflected on this, didn't we, a few weeks ago, thinking about the, in Genesis, what was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all about? And we got down to the heart of it. Really, that tree was all about who has the right to determine what is good and what is evil. And the answer we saw is God. Why? Because in the beginning, God. So in part, God gives us commands to remind us that he is God. There's no one else who is Lord. Do you see how this works in verse 14? You get um, four commands in verse 14. Fear the Lord. Serve and obey him. Do not rebel against his commands and follow the Lord your God. And notice how these four commands kind of work in two pairs. The first pair, the first statement, fear the Lord, is about recognizing who God is. The second command is about how to live in light of who God is. So I fear God. I know who he is. So what do I do in light of that? I serve and obey him. And then you get the pair repeated again recognizing whose commands they are don't rebel against his commands and what does it mean to live in light of his commands it's that we follow the lord your god so we're seeing here that the commands that are given are given in relationship given for flourishing given to remind us that god is god and then as the passage goes on do you see in verses 16 to 18 what reminder are we all given of who god is Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord and send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. It's incredibly dry. The wheat perhaps hadn't been growing very well. What could the king of Israel do about that? Nothing. But what can the living king do about that? everything so he points them to god and then verse 18 then samuel called on the lord and that same day the lord sent thunder and rain so all the people stood in awe of the lord and of samuel and then as the chapter continues into verse 22 a little later on it's who god is that leads him to not turn against his people that's why At the beginning of the service, I wanted us to reflect on that little phrase at the end of verse 22. God was pleased to make you his people. Just allow that little truth to sink really deep into your heart. If you think about that summary of last week, we've all turned our back on God. God is incredibly gracious. It's only because of who God is that when we mess up, we don't have to run away from him. We actually run to him. And that is the thing that sets the Christian faith apart from every other religion in the world. Because every other religion, when we mess up, would say, try harder. Sort it out. But God just says, come back to me. Isn't it the prodigal son here in 1 Samuel? 
God was pleased to make you his own. Well, just to show us how this this works through uh, in a few other places in the Bible before we tie things together, just cast your mind back to that verse that I keep repeating, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God in judgment speaks to Satan and says, you, Satan, will strike the heel of the son to come, but he will what? Crush your head. Now, that's a great promise, isn't it? But in what context did that promise come? It came in the context of disobedience. Just off the back of Adam and Eve not listening to God, doubting God's goodness. Then God, in the context of that disobedience, gives them a promise. Well, think about 1 Samuel chapter 11, which we looked at last week. Wasn't it not in the context of a broken relationship where Israel asked for a king like the nations? The very thing that God had commanded them not to do in Deuteronomy. Was it not in that context of broken relationship that God raised up a king to win a great victory for his people? And you see it again in chapter 12, don't you? It was in the context of the broken relationship here, recalling the broken history of God's people. That God doesn't reject his people, but says God was still pleased to make you his very own. And you can look anywhere in the Bible for this. this the point we, I hope we're beginning to see in 1 Samuel is this is not a story in isolation. This story is repeated all over the scriptures. Think about the book of Romans. This amazing uh, picture of the Christian gospel. And particularly chapters 1 to 11. It's explaining our brokenness. It gets summarized at the end of chapter 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. But it's in that context, what comes? A great promise. Chapter 5, verse 8. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Or chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What you see time and time and time again in the Bible, it's in the context of our brokenness and our mess that God steps into the mess and he picks us up out of it. Because he was pleased to make you and I his very own. When I'm in the car uh, and I'm on my own, it's pretty much the only time where I can have complete freedom and excuse to put the music on as loud as I want and sing as loud as I want and not worry at all that anyone can hear me. Uh, One of the songs I love to put on is a Christian song. I forget the name of the song, but there's a line in it that I just sing over and over again. And it's this, and you might know it. Your love... Never fails, never gives up, never gives up on me. Your love never fails, never gives up, never gives up on me. And that is exactly what Paul paints in the book of Romans. You get this amazing 11 chapters, your brokenness, but into the brokenness, God steps to rescue you. And at the end of all that, what does Paul do at the end of chapter 11? You might know it. He breaks into a great, what's called a doxology, a praise, a song saying, God, you are too big for me. You are too wonderful. But the very next thing he does in chapter 12 is he says this, in view of God's mercy, in other words, in light of everything that God has done, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Here's a little picture. This is one for you to laugh at. That was uh, me, age 18, in Gambia on my gap year. Uh, I didn't wash or cut my hair for six months because there was no hot water 
or anywhere for me to cut my hair for six months. It was pretty horrendous. That one was for you to laugh at, but this is the serious one. The same time, same place. There's a picture of me on the end of a boat on the sea in Gambia as the sun was setting. And I think it's in many ways quite providential that I've had the opportunity to preach on this passage. I'll tell you why. That year was a huge, significant year in my life. And for the first time in my life, I started reading the scriptures properly every day. And I remember I was reading through the whole Bible, and I did it, the whole Bible, from beginning to end during the six months I was in Africa the first time. I probably uh, glossed over so much of it and forgot it, but I remember being exactly there in that photo, reading through 1 Samuel, probably having no idea what all the stuff is that I've just been preaching through. But I got to chapter 12, verse 24, and I'd been reading and reading and reading, and that verse just arrested me. And I remember where I was. It was that picture. And I didn't keep reading because there was something in that verse where God was just almost drilling it into my heart. And I remembered it. And it's my favorite verse. And I had this horrendous horrendous wood carving made of that verse, which I've now got rid of uh, because I've remembered the verse. But it was my way of saying that is the year where God taught me this specific thing. And I'd love you just to reflect on that verse. Because I think it's a great verse for us to take into the week ahead. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. And friends, it's only when we understand and remember who he is. And when we understand and remember all that he's done for us. That we're then liberated to go and use our whole life to serve him to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So as I close, I want to encourage you. Um, I'd like you to think about where you'll be and what you'll be doing at 10 o'clock tomorrow. Uh, Most of us will know where we're going to be at 10 o'clock tomorrow. Perhaps some here won't know. Many of us won't want to be where we're going to be at 10 o'clock tomorrow, but we're going to be there. Some of us have no idea where we'll be at 10 o'clock tomorrow. But wherever you're going to be tomorrow at 10 o'clock, this is the verse that I hope and pray that we can all together in our different 10 o'clocks take into the day. Because actually, the circumstance of tomorrow and 10 o'clock doesn't matter. For some here, it will be a time of great joy and something you love doing. For many, it might be a massive burden or something you don't want to face up to. But wherever you are tomorrow at 10 o'clock and wherever I am tomorrow at 10 o'clock, let's together recall this verse. And perhaps we could pray it for each other at 10 o'clock. I think that is a verse that gives us all a tremendous reason to get up in the morning. Because of who God is, because of all that he's done for us, to serve him faithfully with all of our heart. And that was God's message through Samuel to his people all those years ago. And it's the same message to us here tonight. Should we pray together? Just going to give us a moment of stillness and quiet to... Reflect in our own heart on what that passage might mean to us, particularly the significance of that verse. And I'll lead us in a prayer in a few moments' time. Heavenly Father, as we just think of those words of Samuel, he said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So conscious in my own life, and I'm sure for each of us, that so often we don't listen to your voice. We're so slow to hear you. We're even slower to obey you. And we ask for your forgiveness for that. 
Forgive us, Lord, when we think and we have this view of you that you're a God out there with a big stick who barks orders at us. And when we fail to obey, you run after us with an even bigger stick. Father, may we see from this passage that you are a loving God who always gives commands in the context of relationship. Who always gives commands for our flourishing. Who always gives commands to remind us that you are Lord. Father, tomorrow morning in whatever situation we're in at 10 o'clock, we have a choice to make you our Lord or to make an idol our, our Lord. But we saw so clearly in this passage that idols are no good. They are useless. Would you forgive us for all the ways in which we live for things that are not you in our lives? Forgive us when we know the good that we ought to do and we don't do it. Or when we're so slow to listen that we never hear your voice to hear the good that we are to do. Lord, we all stand here, sit here tonight, broken before you. But I thank you for how we see the gospel so clearly on view in this chapter, that you were pleased to call us your people. Thank you, Father, that when we run from you, you just call us back, like the father calling back the prodigal son. Come back to me. We thank you that it was at the cross that our debt was paid. It was paid in full. And so, Father, in view of who you are, in view of all that you have done for us, please, tomorrow at 10 o'clock, help us to remember this verse and to serve you faithfully with all of our hearts. And may perhaps you jog our hearts to pray for one another tomorrow, that we can all go out into the darkness of our world and be beacons of light to the glory and honor of your name. Amen.